initiative podcast volume number two issue number 90 we're about 10 episodes away from the big 100 i am dm vince i'm sitting alongside the dm will hey what's up is marquee <laughs> and coming back because he just couldn't stay away and well we needed him in the show this week dm Dwayne. hey what's up guys uh, DM Matt is actually playtesting something for Gen Con, so he couldn't sit in with us today. And uh, DM Nick is out with a family uh, vacation, so we'll see him next week when he gets back. Anyway, let's get on with the show here, and we'll head right into some Sage Advice. Okay, Sage Advice this week, you can roll, uh, roll, yeah, roll us in a letter. Go ahead. Uh, write in rfistaff at gmail.com or... Five seven zero eight six five forty two ten. The hotline. You have a couple emails this week. The first one, email comes in from Timmy, and he writes, "Hi guys, love the show. Want to hear your take on the spells that start with power word? What do you think the caster shouts out as the power word? Would it be the secondary name or just some draconic word due to the spell?" Thanks, Timmy. I don't know. I never actually thought about that. I would think it was just a secondary word. When it, like power word, stun or kill, just stun. What do you think? Well, nah, well, no, nah, that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's a very simple spell. You decide which one it's going to be, and then it's stun or kill or what are the other ones again? This, I thought there were some other ones. I just can't recall right now the time and everything on, on the power words. But that's exactly what it is. It, that, it's just one word. Yeah, that's what I figured. It was just a, I, some people say it's a draconic word, but I, I think it's just the word itself. Stun. Whatever. Kill. Well, I do not understand what they mean by draconic. What do they mean by that? Well, you know how they say that all magic is a, is a form of draconic language, a dragon language, an ancient language? Uh, that's... Uh, I don't know about all that and everything. I... I, I, this is what I think about spells. One, all spells are unique in, to, to, a, to a magic user. So if you run into 100 magic users, each of those magic users are going to write down the spell in a different mathematical formula. <laughs> or formula, whatever you want to say. Formula, yeah. You know, you know, that's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to say. So <laughs> is it some form? Why would it be draconic magic? I, 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 I never, draconic I is the it. oldest form word. People, a lot of people associate Draconic as the oldest form of, the oldest written form of uh, magic language. That's why. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, more power to him and everything. I don't look at it like that, really, to be honest with you. I never really went to great depth in, into that and everything. It never became an issue. But, and, but me, for, I, I just I have an issue with that because, I mean, I don't see how the spells are then taught. It's just one of those things. That's why all magic users do spells in their own mathematical mind, however they do it. Mm-hmm. And, that, you know, and that's why it's so hard to get about. <laughs> but when you read the uh, description of the spell, uh, the area effect is one creature. 
Yeah. So it's, it's not like you, you have to know that person's name or whatever. Uh, as long as you can see it or see him or her or whatever it is you're casting it, they made the saving throw and it's done. It's, it's, it's a dead issue. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you had me laughing because like, you take 100 magic users. I was like, imagine, today we we surveyed 100 magic users. And, uh, 50 out of the 100 magic users agreed with DM Will. <laughs> we secretly replaced their coffee with Walmart brand coffee. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I kind of laughed because I was thinking of that, but anyway. <laughs> All right, thanks, Timmy. Email number deuce. That's not a good email. Hi, just found the show, and I love it. My question to you is I decided to make up a character like Batman due to the movie just coming out. And I was wondering what your, what you all thought he might be. What you all, what you all, okay. What you all thought he might be class-wise and what his alignment would be. Keep it up. How, Harold the Kumar. <laughs> and I like that name. I don't know, uh, Batman. I'm I'm thinking Batman's gonna be some type of like acrobat, thief acrobat. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Thief acrobat. As far as alignment goes, I don't know. He'd have definitely to be chaotic. I don't know. Chaotic, good. I think. I don't know because he was all for this last movie. Movie was like all about I'm protecting the city and I don't care about myself and I don't know. It's kind of well. What do you think about Batman's alignment? Lord have mercy. You can ask me a question like this. You know, I was never one to equate alignment with non-fantasy and all that other stuff. I just, I just never did that and everything. I mean, when I look at Batman, I mean, the guy is a warrior. He's a fighter. Yeah. That's what he is. He's out there fighting evil. Uh, I mean, th- I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying he could be a thief acrobat. I mean, he does a lot of the acrobatic stuff, but there's a lot of fighters that do the same thing, too. I mean, Batman's heavily armored. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it just goes along with, I think he's a fighter. Straight up, he's a fighter with all those special little skills and everything. I mean... Take everything away from him. Who he is? I mean, if you saw the last Batman movie, he didn't use too many tricks out of his belt, his utility belt. No. So, so I'd look at him more as, as a fighter class, alignment-wise. Yeah, that's a tough one. I, I, he's still lawful. He is still lawful, and I think he's more lawful neutral than anything else. You think he's lawful neutral, huh? Hmm. Yeah, because now if you take a look at lawful neutral, lawful neutral is a very, very nasty alignment. Um, you know, people say like, "Oh, it's lawful, so it's good." No, not necessarily. No. I think lawful uh, evil is easier to play than lawful neutral, and uh, I-, I think he's lawful neutral. He still sticks to the laws and everything. He still does that, abide by that. But I don't know what you're basing on from the very early Batman when it was like the uh, the superheroes. What is it called? Justice League of America? Not what the Justice League of America. What was it called again? Super Friends. Uh, yeah, the Super Friends. There you go. But the Super <laughs> Friends. And then you watch, this is when, you know, I remember when comic books used to be 15 cents each. And then I see them now almost like three, three seventy five, four dollars now. So I've seen Batman go through that metamorphosis. Well, you could say the, the Batman, <laughs> the original Batman probably was like more like lawful good. Adam West. The Adam West Batman definitely was lawful good. I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's how you have to look at things like that. I mean, I don't know what Batman they're referring to, but uh, the last I think one. he's more of a lawful neutral kind of guy. And uh, and like I said, lawful neutral, if you, if you really look into it, and I, not just from first edition AD&D, but look at lawful neutral in some of the other D20 games, uh, RPGs, and you'll see where I'm coming from on lawful neutral. Well, I think he's basing it off the, the Christian Bale Batman character because he said just due to the movie just coming out. Oh, okay. But it's kind of tough because he... 
in my opinion, he evolved in alignment and alignment throughout all three movies. Each movie, he kind of showed a different side to him. So, yeah, he went from this like total guy that was out for revenge and everything to this guy that was just I'm protecting the city. I'm a symbol for everybody to look up to. So it's kind of hard to pick his alignment out. Well, my whole thing with the Batman movie is Superman's not that far away. He could have called Superman to solve all those problems. That's all I think about it. That's ne- that's next summer, right? <laughs> <laughs> I saw the preview for that. That's next summer. Anyway, all right, Harold uh, the Kumar, <laughs> you have to figure this one out on your own by just basing it off which Batman from which movie and which time period. I definitely would say if you're going to play the Dark Knight Batman, you're probably going to be looking at a more chaotic for himself Batman. So, anyway, uh, email number trace. Guys, I have I'm having trouble with the charging rules. Can you explain it by the book? And is there any house rules for it? Also, can you explain it as if I was using the three attacks every two rounds option? Great podcast. I'm I'm so happy you have, you have a new show for my listening enjoyment every week, Frogger God. Cool, we place Frogger. <laughs> I, by the book, I don't really use the charging rules by the book. I know will you do charging by the book exactly? Oh, man, now you're going to ask me one of those rule questions and everything. I can't even recall the last time anyone's actually charged. I, I don't even hear that. I, to me, when I hear people say charge, that it's, it's like it's just a common word. I'm going to charge to the enemy, but they're not using the rules out of the book per the charge and everything is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, when I do charge, and, and Dwayne's been in my groups, I just kind of yeah. do the D20 version of the charge. I give them like a plus one to attack, and I minus off their AC for the second round. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, like I said, a big thing on charges, and you know, in first edition AD&D, charges are, are, are determined, a successful charge is determined on, you know, the movement of the movement rate. Are you charging outdoors? Are you charging indoors? Right. Um, and you know what? There is no initiative check at the end of a charge. Okay. So, and then, you know, there's going to be some, uh, there's no dexterity. There's no dexterity, dexterity bonus allowed when a creature charges. And, uh, creatures that have any type of their armor class becomes one the creature that's getting charged becomes one a, cre- a creature that's getting charged by someone loses ac oh okay so i mean and there's so many other things like if you you know if you got a, a, a creature charge and then you know there's a chance that you could possibly set weapons for the opponent's charge and so on also charging creatures get a you know a plus two to hit when they when they get to their target oh, okay so i was doing that right then okay Right, um, and there and the creatures can only do that one action that round. They can only charge once per round. They can't go. I'm a charge and go through all ten goblins and hit them. No, that that's not the way it works. <laughs> Will you allow players to back up ten feet and then charge? Or yeah, that's kind of weird how they would do that. It's kind of weird and everything. Yeah. How about uh, three attacks every two rounds? Do you allow do you allow them to charge and attack, or do you consider the charge on uh, movement and attack oh. together? If they charge, and it's just like D20 and everything, and that's considered a full round action, in order to do a full round action, I'm just going to use Pathfinder because basically that's D20. In order to do a full round action, they can only take one five-foot step in order to get their multiple attack per round. And the same thing would apply here with the charge. If they're charged, that is the only action they could take in the round. Now, of course, if you go to Unearthed Arcana and everything and then go with uh, the the Cavalier charging, because he got that uh, abilities with the Lance, 
I believe that's where the rules change a bit. Yeah, the Cavalier is different. We're talking about general rules. Yeah. But if my fighter saying, right, I'm going to charge attack that goblin, would he charge and then he rolls attack the next round? Or would he just charge and rolls attack and then next round he gets his two attacks? Well, when it comes to the strike blows and everything, it all determines on the initiative. That's the whole thing about it because we have to f- figure out simultaneous initiative. What if it's simultaneous? We have to look at weapon uh, speed bonus and all that stuff, the speed oh, factor. Cool. And there's, there's so many things determined, you know. On I would say happened. we get rid of all that crap except for the initiative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that if um, if a, if a PC or or even an, uh, an enemy is charging, if if they do have the three attacks every two rounds, I would say that would count as their two attacks. Um, yeah. I, I wouldn't let them charge and then attack twice the next round because I would figure that everything that they put into that charge probably took away from them being able to do that those two attacks the next round the thing is i haven't had any of my pcs try to charge they're usually running away huh. so <laughs> that's good so it's a good <laughs> sign your pcs are running away run away yeah. okay cool that was interesting I, I i just i agree with Dwayne. i would probably let them just do the one attack and that's it but like will said you're putting everything into it so yeah, it just like I said, depends on how simple you want to do it. I mean, is it really necessary to have, you know, what, what difference on, on weapon speed and all that stuff and everything? Because, I mean, let's be realistic. If it takes longer to hit with a lance, I find that ridiculous anyway. Yeah. If the lance is 10 feet long, I would suspect that weapon's going to hit first. Mm. Especially if you're fighting a melee character. I think that's common sense. But again, if you play by the book and everything, sometimes common sense is thrown out, out of the door, you know? Cool. All right, if you have any sage advice, you can write us or RFI staff at gmail.com or uh, 570-865-4210, the hotline. Okay, we'll head into our first segment of the Night Table Manners. This uh, week, we're going to be doing something just a little bit different than the normal AD&D rules. We're going to take a look at another game that came out during the same time D&D was born. Uh, called Dragon Quest and how TSR pretty much bought this company out and made their own version of the rules and we're going to compare it versus D&D we will also put a link in the show notes so you can download the original rules and the the uh, third edition rules which TSR made up after they bought out the company in the 80s so uh, be right back typical of all the evil creatures in the world I'd like to find one with table man. What are you kidding me? I've spent years cultivating the worst table manners on the planet. Table manners. Okay, so today we're going to talk about how do we make a character in Dragon Quest. Dragon Quest came out a long time ago. What year was it again, Vince? Uh, 1980s, I believe, is when it came out. Yeah, I'm trying to see when. It, yeah, yeah, 1980. The first edition of it was 1980 and everything. Simu- Simulations Publications, SPI. Yep, yep, that's it. Was the first company to produce this. Yeah, and actually, you know, I find this a very interesting concept with this particular game because as I was reading it, because I remember Dragon Quest from back in the day, but I never really got into it because, of course, I was playing first edition AD&D. That's, that's near and dear to my heart. So I wasn't going to another system. However, this game has a lot of commonalities with another, uh, 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 what well, is actually coming out with two other games that I played extensively back in those days, and that was Harn Master and uh, Chivalry and Sorcery. And I'm going to cover that stuff here in a little bit and everything, but there's a lot of commonalities. And when you're going to hear me say a lot, it's just like Harn or it's just like Chivalry and Sorcery. So character generation is pretty easy. With this game here, you need 10-sided die to determine everything. Yeah. From, you know, I mean... 
10-sided dice, it's, everything is basically based on 10-sided dice. Now, if like, for example, if they tell you that you need to roll a, uh, a D5, well, simply, you need to roll a 10-sider and divide by 2. I think that's very simple to understand that. So from there on, like I said, 10 siders are determined. So in order to determine, uh, let's just start with the character generation. How, how is it different from first edition D&D and how we determine these things? First off, they have some different statistics. In this case here, they're not really called statistics. They're called characteristics, if I understand correctly. Yes. So, like, uh, the characteristics in this game is physical strength, and that's what they call it. It's not just strength. It's physical strength, and this is very important because throughout the book or throughout the rules, when they say PS, you're thinking, like, PS? What is PS? PS refers to physical strength. So I'm going to say them all as they are. Physical strength, manual dexterity, agility, endurance, magic aptitude, willpower, uh, fatigue, perception, and physical beauty. So, and then, of course, if they say PB, physical beauty. If they say fatigue, it might be an F. I have no idea. I didn't see anything with an F in there. They usually spelled out fatigue. So that's what the characteristics are for a character in this game. And in this game, everything, everything that you encounter, every character you roll up, every NPC you run into is going to have this. And that's something that's unlike first edition AD&D. If you look at the monster manual, you will not see any any stat blocks. Let's call them stat blocks for the time being. Right. You don't see any stat blocks for monsters. So you have to leave it up to the DM to figure out, well, what kind of stat blocks will I give a monster in the monster manual one? But when I looked at the monsters in here, I believe everything had a yes. stat, if I'm correct. Everything, has a, everything is statted out for you just for easy convenience, yeah. Yes, yes. Now, uh, this is fun now. This is the best part about the game because this is where, I mean, characters are more flexible in this game than they are in first edition AD&D. And let me give you an example. How do you determine what what kind of character uh, scores you get for your characteristics? Well, you're going to take two 10-siders, you're going to roll those 10-siders, and then you're going to cross-index on the point generation table. So you take two 10-siders, add them together, and let's say, for example, I roll a 10. Well, you're going to get 90 characteristic points. You're going to take those 90 characteristic points, and then you're going to put it into your characteristics, whether, you know, physical strength, manual dexterity, agility, endurance, and so on and so on and so on. Now, there's a couple rules that that is very strict here for how a character is is done up like this. For example, if you... Now, make sure you understand how this works. This is kind of weird now. Yeah. Okay. The minimum value that a player may assign to a primary characteristic is five. So the lowest you can have is a five, which pretty means that's the worst of the worst. Yeah, that's pretty much bumbling, yeah. Yep. And the highest that you can achieve is 25. Right. Now, how do we determine 25? Well, like I said... If you roll two dice and you rolled a two, two ones, that, that equals two, you will get 81 characteristic points. If you roll two ten-siders and get a 20, you're going to get 99 characteristic points. And how they um, balance this out is uh, if you get 99 characteristic points, the max score in any of your characteristics is a 19. Right, you scroll your finger to the right, and it shows you right next to the number what your yes. maximum value can be for each of the categories. Now, with that said, that once you put that 19, let's say we put 19 in physical strength. This is going to be kind of like a fighter-like character. Okay. Okay, so you have 19. 19 from 99 leaves, what, 80? Yeah, 80. Yeah, 80, yeah. Okay, now let's say you want to put another 19. You will not be able to. 
because the rule says a character may only have one characteristic equal to its maximum value if that value is greater than 20. And I take that back. If it's a 19, I'm sorry, he can do another 19, but that's the, the, the second part of the rule. Oh, so for say, example, yeah. yeah, see how that works now? If you put 20 into physical strength, you can't have, you can only have one stat of 20. The next one, the next two can be 19 and 19 and it goes on down from there on if you understand how that works now, as you see. Well, if I had like 99 points, I would probably max myself out as a fighter with a 25, wouldn't you? you can, nope, you can't get you a can't. 25. No, oh, okay. If, no, no, because if you look at the chart, if you roll a 20 on two 10-siders, you look at that chart, it says maximum, it says 19. That is the max you can put in your characteristic is 19. Oh, I and see. Then, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, see that? But see, now it gets better, though, if you roll two dice and get a two... You get 81 characteristic points, but now you can have a maximum of 25. So what they're doing is they're pretty much... Um, they're restricting the people with more points. With the more points in favor of the one with the least amount of points. However, it still balances out because yeah. the person with the 99 points will have you know an extra 18 points to play with and a person that has 81 points. So it balances out pretty good. I'm actually impressed with this, this mechanism they have placed here on how to determine stats. I kind of like so the, the spot when they would talk about secondary stats. Yes. How they said the the, the, uh, the GM can make up ones that he needs in the game. That is correct. So how would they get the points for those? I didn't see that part. Let's see here. If you're talking about the secondary characteristics, you mean? Yeah. Well, I thought he made those up, though, and that was based on the, the percentages. Remember, you had to do percentages with those. Oh, okay. Okay. And that's where the, the secondary ones come in. So, uh, and, and it's pretty cool on how they figure out the value. Like, for example, let's talk about the fatigue is a direct function of endurance. And, and this is where people say, what is fatigue and endurance? They both sound and say, well, they're, they're two different concepts and everything. Fatigue is the, uh, the measure of the length of time that a character can sustain activities requiring a great deal of physical or mental exertion. For example, combat, casting spells. That's what I like about this game is in this game here, if you cast spells, you're going to get tired very quickly. Yeah. Very uh, a fatiguing event with casting spells. Rem now, endurance is how much punishment you can take. That'd be your, that'd be your health, yeah. That's your health and whatever the case may be. So, yeah, there's two differences of those, and I like that because in Harn Master and Chivalry and Sorcery, you have fatigue. So if you want to go around wearing that, uh, fatigue is awesome because it all, not only does it apply in combat, but also like when you wear heavy armor or if you have a heavy load of stuff and everything. It's just amazing, and the rules do restrict players on how many weapons they can carry on their body. It, there's just so many new things in this game. It's unbelievable. It reminds me a lot of when looking at fatigue. It reminds me a lot of the, uh, the D20 version in Star Wars where they had the vitality versus the wound points exactly. and Spycraft how they did that as well yes yeah, so that's what I like about that and that's what's lacking in uh, the D20 system I mean there's some optional rules for fatigue and all that stuff and everything but there's already rules implemented in that system for people that have heavy loads or have heavy armor and all that other stuff so I don't think that's why it's more or less of an optional rule okay so basically what happens is we create the character, we assign all the points, and that is awesome. Now we're going to get into some of the elements that is not in first edition AD&D, and this is where a lot of weird things can happen. First off, let's start with the races. In first edition AD&D, unless the DM says otherwise, a player can be any race he wants to be. Right, any gender, any race, yep. 
any gender, any race. He could be any age. He could do whatever he wants, mm-hmm. pretty much, as long as the DM approves it. However, in Dragon Quest, you can play a human automatically. Yes, the human race is the most prevalent, yeah. It's correct, and that's what they did in this game. They made them very prevalent, so they are, they are the majority, while demi-humans are the minority. If you want to play a demi-human, you have to roll percentile dice. Yeah. And you roll under. And again, this is, is something that is used in chivalry and sorcery and Harn Master. If you want to play uh, the dwarves or the elves and everything, you have to roll on percentile dice. Now, in those games, you have to roll very high, like a 95 or better to be a dwarf and 97 or better to be an elf. So it's much more easier being a dwarf than an elf because there are long ages in that game. They also, um, one thing to point out, well, they really push the human race as the top race in here by saying, if you want to play an elf, a dwarf, or anything else, those races are going to be in their twilight years. Yeah, I saw some interesting stuff on that and everything, and I thought it was kind of weird how they put that in there, so I didn't like that too much. So so I would adjudicate that differently, saying, well, I don't understand why they've enforced that. I think they're doing that to try to show this is a human-centric world, and humans are more important than anything else in the world. So they were trying to put emphasis on, you're going to play a human, but if you want to play anything else, you've got to play one of them in their older years, or their twilight years. Right, right. Now, something I found real weird with this, and I don't want to get anyone offended by this. This is this is really weird. I have no clue why they put this into the game. Right. I think it's a non-factor. I think this is something that shouldn't be you know involved. But according to the rules here, each player can choose the sex of the character. However, if a character uh, may only be hermaphroditic or asexual if the player receives special permission from the game master. That's weird. They put that in the game? Oh, yeah, I see it right here on, on uh, page 8, yeah. I thought that's very unusual. I, I, I thought that, wow. I mean, if, if back in the 80s, if I had saw this, I probably wouldn't pick this game because my mom and dad usually read everything I got. If they saw something like this, they would look at that kind of here. What kind of game is this? Yeah. Is, did you do this? It's just kind of weird. I, I just can't see a asexual. What does that mean, anyway? Does it like anything... <laughs> No sex. No, no, no sex, sex, yeah, pretty much. Doesn't identify with, with either sex. Kind of like how Richard Simmons runs around saying he's asexual. Well, you know what? I saw a Star Trek episode, Star Trek Generation, where Riker ran, they were dealing with this race that, that they were asexual. They do not identify with each gender. So I can see where that comes in. That's unusual, but again, something weird. I think that's something that should be between that player and, and the DM. I don't know why that would be an issue. But, uh... See, other things that are very critical in this game, and I'm going to tell you why later on once we get to the combat, the player must determine whether his, his primary hand is left-handed or right-handed. I think that's a good thing. Well, it, in this game, it is very specific why that is. But I do think it's a good thing. Dude. I make players do that a lot in D&D because I'm so sick of the people that are like, I cut off, you, you get right-hand cut off. Luckily, I have my left hand that I can just start chopping with. Not everybody can do that. Right. But go on. So let's see. Uh, and again, let's go back to the races again. Yeah. If someone wants to be a dwarf, they have to take percentile dice. They have to roll under 25. If they want to be an elf, they have to roll under 30. Now, in this game, they have some interesting races you can play. Unlike first, uh, first edition ADD, you can't play an orc. In this game, in Dragon Quest, you can play an orc, but you have to roll a 20 and below. Now, that's kind of odd that uh, you're more likely to... Uh, well, let's go into the giant. You could be a giant. You need a six... Six uh, percent or below, and a shape changer at four and below. Huh. 
a half mix at 15 and below. So if you want to play any of these uh, different mixes and everything, and the GM says, okay, no problem, roll percentile dice, well, I rolled a 99. You're human, bud. That's it, plain and simple, human. So that's the way it works with those. I also noticed that they, they are, they're gender biased, too, in this game a lot. Uh, like for playing female characters, your strength is decreased by two automatically. Yeah, I saw that too well in a lot of areas in here and everything. And again, you just have to say this is the 80s. And this is very interesting that this, this topic is coming up concerning this game because did you see that uh, post that I did on the OSR forum? Um, PCs, race, racist PCs? No, I didn't see it. Nope. Yeah, I posted that on there because they was talking about things on there, and it's very interesting what that author of that article, you know, has, you know, did, he did a historical analysis of D&D and how race was involved in everything and how human-centric it is, and then it goes on, on, on actual, you know, race. So it's actually pretty good. So it's, again, it's the same thing here with this game, too, as well. So it's when you read it, you have to, like, give it a double-tick. So, like, did they really say that? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny and everything. But it is cool. I'm looking at, like, playing a giant. They do give you the option of different types of giants to play if you get to be a giant. Yeah, it's very impressive. You have fire giant, frost giant, cloud giant, stone giant. So, I mean, and in here, the giants are typically good-natured. Yeah. And and, and everything. They don't make them out to be very dangerous. They said they're lusty types, prefer nothing better than to go through life brawling, drinking, and wenching. I'm just good hard. So yeah. They kind of, kind of, yeah, they're kind of, they kind of describe things a lot different than D&D does, I'll tell you that. Right. So again, they talk about all these things, the halfling, the orc. Uh, they say the orcs are normally nomadic, which is kind of weird. And they say they're cruel, violent folk that live live nothing better than to rape and pillage. And this goes on. They say that they're a cowardly lot. I mean, I said like, oh, here's a typical orc with pig faces. These orcs do have pig faces. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and then, of course, the unusual shape change, which seems to be, it is a a separate genetic strain of human with the ability to change into the form of a particular animal. And they only got four types. Wolf, type, bear, and boar. So they're, like, they're almost like a, a lycanthropy or a, a lycanthropy however people want to pronounce it and everything. So, but yeah, he's a shape changer. I think that the, the optional rule at the very end, the aspects, is kind of interesting, but I think a little bit too much for a GM to keep track of. Well, see, and this is the good part. And if they, again, this again, this is I wonder when they did harm master and shrivel sorcery in the days, if one one group or another really looked at the stuff and this was like some type of, uh, you know, uh, they used this in part of their games. But let me see here. Aspects. When a person is born, date and time. And, 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 and you know, what month or what have you and everything. And depending on that and everything, uh, the solar or lunar aspect and the and all that stuff, it affects your character in a positive, a negative way, or it could be neutral depending on when they're born. It'll give them pluses or minuses. So I thought that was pretty interesting and everything. So, yeah. and then, of course, the heritage comes in. A lot of people like to get into that heritage stuff. Where do you come from? How large is your family? How many kids? Where was you in, in, in the order of birth? You know, stuff like that. Uh, was your, uh, uh, was you a bastard or were you legitimate? Was you the first child? And then depending if your dad or parents were merchants or craftsmen, or abandons, or lesser nobility, greater nobility, all that stuff comes, in, and, and, and what, that, what that dictates is how much wealth you begin with at, at, at the very beginning of the game. And then you finally round it off by rolling how much experience you start with, and how much silver pieces, you, well, silver pennies, I should say, you start with. That's the, that's another thing that's different from AD&D, is that they don't use the typical common de uh, denominations in here for wealth. Silver pennies, 
Um, and I don't forget what all, all the other stuff was and everything, but it's all weird, different and everything. So, again, um, it, it's just funny. Yeah, it's starting off with experience points, you know. It's, it's, it's definitely unusual because I tell you, in first edition AD&D, you're starting off at zero experience points, plain and simple. Yeah, well, well these experience points are actually used to uh, acquire skills at rank zero and raise them up. So, at initial stage, those are those points are for. Exactly. But, you know, that basically is how you generate a character. That is basically how you generate a character. Plain up. That is exactly... It, it, okay. sounds a little, it sounds a little bit difficult, but that's how you do it. Very different than first edition AD&D. Honestly, now, I mean, because I'm going to put the question to you all, too. Uh, I prefer first edition AD&D as far as rolling up characters. It will always be my favorite way of rolling up characters. So I do the 4d6. I drop one and then, you know, keep the high and put them wherever you need to do. Uh, that's how I normally do it and everything. Uh, you know, social birth and and uh, the choosing any race you want and all that stuff. That's all the pluses for AD&D. Now, if you play a game like Horn Master and Chivalry and Sorcery, those games are human-centric. That means that there's that humans are the, the majority, and they still are in first edition ADD anyway, regardless. But Sorcery and Horn Master, uh, it's very difficult to play a non-human character, and they pretty much stick to this. Now, one thing this game does have that those other ones do not have, we do not play giants, uh, we do not play orcs, and we don't play shape changers in those games. Okay, hold on. The, all right, cool. So, Dwayne, what do you think about listening to this whole conversation about creating characters? What do you think about it? Your opinion about it? Wow. Um, <laughs> you, yeah, you roll for everything, which is which is neat. Um, that that is definitely a different system. Um, rolling for you know, left, right hand. Um, rolling for initial experience points. It seems to me, um, after playing Marvel a couple times now, um, that is similar to Marvel in some respects, um, as far as. Uh, you know, per, being percentage based, and uh, you know, yeah. experience more along the lines of karma, so you can use it to raise certain skills. Um, it seems involved. I, I prefer first edition uh, AD and I'm not saying I wouldn't give this a shot. It's just there's a lot to it. Especially, I've never played this game um, ever. <laughs> I, I, so I've heard of I've heard about it. Uh, this is uh, it was actually a board game, also. So maybe that's what you heard of that. Yeah, I've probably heard about the board game. Like I said, um, I, I started playing with with Menser and, and First Edition uh, AD and D. So this really never came um, came to me hmm. before. I never heard about it. But I mean, it does. It seems interesting. It does. You know, it's just there's a lot of neat stuff here and you know it, it kind of making your whole character random probably would give more role playing opportunities I think hmm uh, some quick thoughts of history about it Dragon Quest appeared actually in four editions uh, SPI made a uh, first one and the second and then there was a revised edition done by Bantam Books then TSR purchased them and they published the third edition book as of 2006 Wizards of the Coast had the rights to the game, but Hasbro dropped the rights to the game. They let it expire because they had no interest in continuing it. So actually, nobody holds the rights to this game. I guess technically Wizards of the Coast does, if they want to challenge it, but they've let it lapse over four or five years now, so there's nothing they could do probably about it. I guess with legal team, they probably could, but they're not challenging anybody right now with this game. <laughs> I kind of like the system. I wonder if Birthright was uh, born based on this game. 
Because it, it kind of reminds me of playing Birthright in a sense. Well, you know, when I, you know, I love Birthright. I, I'm telling you, that was probably the second or third best game system campaign system that came out during the second edition days with uh, Ravenloft and Planescape, or I'm sorry, uh, Ravenloft and Dark Sun being my number one and two. Uh, Birthright, I, I wouldn't be shocked if they, if they used some of the elements from Dragon Quest, mostly concerning the social status and, and, and all that other stuff and everything. Yeah. I, I know it just didn't really, I'm looking at some of so it didn't really sell all that well once TSR took it over. Surprise. Which one? Which one? Birthright? Uh, this. Dragon Quest. Oh, you're talking about Dragon Quest? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, first edition was in its heyday. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was the powerhouse game. First edition was truly king in those days. You know, from 78 to all the way through the 80s, Mm. first edition was king, especially the early 80s. I I remember it. I mean, that was it. That was the game. That's what all the kids wanted to play. And now, of course, you know, I'm I'm, I'm just, you know, generalizing when I say all, but let's just be realistic. That's all I heard. (laughs) D&D, D&D this, D&D that. Yeah, all the nerds, not all the jocks. Hey, 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 I was a jock back in those days. I was playing sports. Oh, Will, please. You know you were all part of band camp, please. <laughs> I, I, I played music, too. I did a lot of that stuff. I was I was very versatile back in the day. All right, But, all right. but I, I supplemented my weekends. Of course, we all did those weekends where we stayed over at a friend's house and played like 12, 13, 14, 15 marathons. But no, no, um, I, 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 it's funny to see this. It, it really is funny to see this. It, it has a lot of potential. But again, if you played Chivalry and Sorcery and Horn Master, uh, you uh, let me just say that you would rather play that than this. Yeah. Only because the source material, the supplemental material for those two games is extensive. Well, Dragon Quest may be dead as far as a publisher is concerned. It doesn't mean it's dead in the eyes of the fans. It's you, not. There's a huge Dragon yeah. Quest follows out, following out there. You can go to DragonQuest.org and there's a whole society, Dragon Quest yep. Society, and they have their own... They actually have their own living campaign for the past... I don't know, 10 years now? I was uh-huh. looking at the site, and they have over 200-something players and DMs. Unfortunately, they're based in, I think, New Zealand, so you could, you can't go to the live events, but you could participate in the on- online events and maybe coordinate something with somebody over here. I don't, th- I don't think they would, they would shun that, but... Yeah, and you can download the book for free. We'll put the link in there for you. I mean, there's nothing bad about that. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's about all we can say about it. Let's head over to game mechanics. You think I'm mad? Perhaps I am. What are you, a wizard, a genius? Darn, a perfectly good brain wasted. Game mechanics. All right, game mechanics this week. We're actually going to take a look at some the combat method in this game and how it reflects versus uh, first edition rules. First of all, like Will said, you need a D10 to play this game. So normally with D10 games, it's going to be a percentile roll, which it is. Um, some minor differences between uh, D&D and uh, this game. Instead of using rounds, they use something called pulses. We use six-second rounds. They use five-second pulses. When they attack, it's a D100 versus the modified strike chance on a character. So you'd have to take that static number and roll under it or equal that number to hit them. Damage is always, no matter what, going to be a D10. No matter what you're doing, unless you get one of those special hit attacks, then you would do a little more damage. Uh, The higher you roll, the worse the attack. Uh, If you roll a 99, your weapon is considered broken. If you roll 100, it's just considered dropped. 
I think that should be the opposite, but whatever. Initiative is always predetermined on a character because you take the agility, you add the perception, and the rank of the weapon skill that you have. Yes, each weapon has a uh, particular skill level that you have in using it, which goes up as you rise as a character. If they don't have a weapon ready, you would just use agility plus perception. You compare the two. The higher the two goes, if it's a tie, then you can just look to agility, or you can look to the, G the GM to see who decides who goes first. Now, armor in this game works a lot different. We were talking about a little bit about that before, how fatigue and endurance come into play. Armor. Now, combat is going to take a long time based upon these what I was reading here. Because not only would you start attacking fatigue points, the armor you wear absorbs every bit of damage you take and reduces by one. So every time... Think of, think of the Star Trek shield method. Every time you... 10 points of damage, your armor would absorb 5 points of it, go down by 1. And the rest of it would hit the fatigue until your fatigue goes down and then it would attack the endurance straight away. Or if the absorption armor goes all the way down to 0, you'd start hitting your fatigue all the way until that goes all the way down and you start attacking your endurance. Now, you were saying something about a grievous attack before, Will? Yes, that uh, that is basically like a critical hit. Okay, so probably like a one or something. And it's horrible because when that happens, there's a chart in there, and this is where you start losing uh, members of the body. Fingers, uh, legs, arms, hands. It, it's horrible. Yeah, it's uh, pretty rough. And um, if you get to three or... What is it? Yes, if you fall to three, you're unconscious. If right. you fall to zero, you're automatically dead. If you get if one in one shot you take one third of how many hit points you have left, it's you considered stunned in yep. one shot, and that's basically how combat works. There are some other things like infections, which uh, I didn't really lead upon because I thought that was an optional rule, and Will's telling me it's not, so my bad. What is that on the infections? Yeah, the infections. Yeah, I didn't think it was it was an op it was like a special option. It says at the end of every combat in which a figure is wounded or when a figure is wounded in a non-combat situation, there's a possibility that figure has become infected. Now, when they say that figure, okay, this game is done very different when it comes to combat because what's going to happen is there's going to be a hex map laid out, not uh the square the typical yeah. square grid, it's going to be a hex map. If you all have ever played a game like Starfleet Battles or any of the old uh, a uh I'm sorry, I was gonna say API games. Uh, what do you call them again? Battletech. Well, yeah, then there goes Battletech, and I was thinking of the other one, but I just can't think what it is right now. Palladium. Uh, you, you have. Uh, no, it's. Uh, oh my goodness, it's at the tip of my tongue. But I'll give it a second. Anyway, uh, what's going to happen is the. Um, let me take a look here. The the one hex is going to be where you're facing. The hex to your left, the hex to your right, which would be your two hex, and your six hex, that is going to be the, the one, the six, and the two is going to be your front flank, and then the three in the back behind are your rear flank. So this is very different, because in this game here, the the uh, GM is going to draw out the, not draw it out, but he'll have the hex map, yeah. and he'll put down you know, either miniatures, dice, pennies, to represent the players, but in this case, it would be very important to have figures, so you know what, facing is very important. Let me yeah, that th this game is very, very mini-dependent, I noticed. Very tactical. Yeah, yeah and that that's why the combat takes so long. Now, when you talked about the armor, I, I was confused on something there, Vince. What? 
let's say, for example, someone's wearing armor, leather armor, and someone hits them for 10 points, but the armor is only good for six. Six is going to be stopped, but the other four get through. Am I correct? The other four, they said, just absorbs. It goes, it just goes away. Well, I thought the first six get absorbed. Uh, I believe the rest of them go away. I'm yeah, okay. because this is almost the same thing used in chivalry and sorcery and Harnmaster, especially Harnmaster, because in Harnmaster, when you put on, let's say you put on chainmail armor, besides chainmail armor, you're going to have that protective armor that goes underneath the chainmail, so it prevents you from getting chaff skin or whatever like that, and then you could uh, add other pieces of bits that can cover your elbows and your shoulders, but multiple layers of, of uh, armor will absorb more and more damage, so I thought that was what the case was here with this one. Because, I, I, I mean, this doesn't go away. It has to go somewhere. I, I'm just trying to make sure that was what you said. I'm re-looking it over. It's kind of confusing, actually, now that I'm reading it again. Yeah, it is kind of weird and everything because it just, uh, like I said, while you're looking at it, like this is real weird because in Harn Master, you have your moderate success, critical success, moderate failure, and then critical failure, depending on what you roll on the percentile dice when you're okay. striking a creature. Okay, I got it now. Basically, okay. I, I was confusing the, the two points. You're right. When okay. you, you get The armor absorbs and the rest of, the rest of it goes to fatigue. Now, if, right. if your armor goes away... Oh, and yeah, you're done. You, you start attacking the fatigue points. But this is where you're, well, I was thinking. And so, yeah. so say you have, like, five fatigue points, right? And okay. you do ten points of damage. You only take five fatigue points. The rest of it just goes away. Okay. It doesn't go into into the endurance like we originally thought. No, I'm looking at it here. It just says it goes away. The rest of it is ignored entirely. Okay. And then the next round when you attack, it would hit the endurance directly. But how does that affect the armor? I was I messed it up, that's all I'm saying. Oh, no, 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 that's okay. No, 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 you didn't mess it up. I was just making sure because this is going to be very confusing. So if uh, if someone's wearing leather armor and it has a protection of six... Uh, we're right here. I, Ralph is huh? wearing, the, wearing leather armor protection of four. You oh, have four, th okay. You have three fatigue points remaining. An attack against you results in nine points of damage total, which is weird because it's supposed to be all ten. Oh, no, yeah, I got it. Nine points total. The leather armor absorbs four of those, and then normally the remaining five would be subtracted from the fatigue, like you said. Right. But since yeah. he only has three fatigue points left, he loses three fatigue points, and the rest of the damage points are ignored entirely. Wow, impressive. Yeah. And then, But now the armor's value is going to go down now because it absorbed damage. Am I correct? Um, yes. I believe that's what it says. And now, yes, you are correct that damage is always determined by a 10. Again, this is another Harn Master issue. In that game, weapons have a set amount of damage. A great sword does, uh, I think, 13, 14 points. And a short sword does 6 points. A battle axe does 8, whatever the case may be. Now, in this game here, depending on what your strength is... That's where you get pluses, but then what happens is it also determines on the monster, the the, the creature that's being attacked, uh, his his agility and the armor and all that. That's how it the, uh, the the points of damage get modified. Right. I was just looking here. Actually, the standard rules are the the armor stays as as its protection rating of four. You can optionally make it go down by one if you want to. Okay. Okay, that's what I thought I read. Otherwise, it's just every time it's just four, four, and four. But if once your fatigue points are gone, the next round it'll absorb four. The other five will go right into endurance. 
And that's where it's gonna that's gonna stink then. Yeah, that's when you should really start to like, you know, dying. No, but they really got some good examples here and everything. And then, oh, it just goes into the melee combat. Then it goes into the range combat. If you attack from the front, if you attack from the uh, uh, from the rear. I mean, there's so many options in here. So then we start saying, this is almost a D20 kind of like game. I, I like how it's written because it has like these sections like 18.4, 19.2. And it's kind of like uh, like one of those faxes you see in, on a game thing. Like, what happens if I do this type deal and they write it out? They actually kind of break it down and cover almost every possible situation for you. So you're never left in the dust. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it does. And yeah, that's just that's just too awesome. I like it. I like how, I like it. it's a little confusing at first to read, but then once you get used to what they're doing cuz every section is like section 17.6, each attack roll blah blah blah, and then it goes to point 0.7 and each it's really confusing, but then once you read it it's gets better right because it's going to tell you where to go and see this you know where that comes from i'm seeing this from squad leader and i'm seeing this also from starfleet battles when it refers to like we're talking about plasma torpedoes well go to uh g.14 and i believe that covers plasma torpedoes if i remember correctly click on use uh disruptor bolts that's the letter d d yeah i think it's d4 so that's how i remember these things that play starfleet battles so this is like a starfleet battle i mean uh kind of thing to me yeah, it, it goes by the section number, say damage is 19, and then everything under damage is 19.1, 19.2, 19.3. So it keeps everything organized for you to find it very easily. Kind of like a contract almost, it looks like. Oh, yeah. And uh, I don't know if else you covered that on combat on how like certain things can affect combat, like if you're prone, if you're standing still, uh, and all that other stuff. There's so many variables in there and everything. So this is where the players have to come in and say, well, I have these many pluses because one, I'm standing tall, I'm on top of a hill, and and all this other stuff. So I have an additional plus thirty to my my roll or whatever the case may be. Or you need to roll low. Am I correct or high? high. Low, lower than a number. Lower than the number. That's right. Yeah. So you're trying to get a high number, but depending on the creature you're fighting, plus whatever it's doing, that then the number gets adjudicated. It's it's almost similar to Call of Cthulhu. Mm. And chill, chill is another one. That's how combat is done as well with percentile dice. And the lower you roll, anything under fifteen percent lower is when you start using that that table you were talking about. That is correct. The grievous hits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that stuff's no joke. Yeah, that actually, I was read over, uh, reading over that, and uh, Grievous Hit will reduce the armor rating by two instead of just one. Mm-hmm. So, see that? That's what I'm saying. So, the armor rating does go down. I knew that it does go down. Armor rating does go down. I can't stay the same. Well, standardly, yeah, but you can have the option of moving it move down, so. Okay. Yeah, I, w- I would say that if, if this, I believe I remember from Horn Master, if, if armor, let's say the leather armor uh, absorbs four, am I correct? If you yeah. do over four points of damage, well, then it reduces by one. If, let's say, you did three points of damage, the armor is then not reduced by one, and it still remains four. Right. Now, also, they have a lot of different actions you can do during uh, combat. They have engaged figures and close combat figures. When you're engaged, you can, uh, you're can you allowed to melee attack, evade, withdraw, pass, prepare, or, or lose a spell, and then you can close and grapple. Close combat is when you only have three options. That's when you're really, like, pretty much grapple combat. Grapple, withdraw, or pass. Pass being not doing anything at all except preparing for the next round. 
So those are some interesting uh, options that you have there to play. Cool. Anything else we could say about combat that we missed? Um, you know, I just just really quick, uh, just to clarify, I was reading over on the weapons chart. Um, all, all damage is D10 plus the damage rating of the weapon. Because um, each weapon has its own from, it's at least a plus one to a bug. A giant axe causes plus 10, so you have the the possibility of causing 20 points of damage if you roll a D10 plus the damage ra- damage rating on the weapons. And the weapons... There's, there you have to uh, agility and your strength rate. All those affect which weapons you can use and how you use them. And it's it, it is involved, but like like the other guys said, um, they give good examples mm-hmm. in the rules of how you know this is how we do it and this is or this is how you do it. So um, it seems complex, but it it kind of lays it out for you on how, on how to mm-hmm. do figure all this stuff out. And that's just physical combat, and then his magic combat is a totally different thing here. Like casting spells, like Will said, if you, this is when the fatigue points really come into play because casting, you have general knowledge spells and you have special knowledge spells. Uh, when you cast a general knowledge spell, it would probably be considered a low level spell. You would cost you one fatigue point to cast that. The special ones, which would be considered higher level ones, two fatigue points to cast those out. So you have to be careful when you're casting your spells that you don't get too tired of the fact you can't do anything anymore. Yeah, that's exactly the same thing, and and also you lose fatigue as the combat round, as the combat uh, fight goes longer and longer. Yes. you lose you lose fatigue from that too as well. Yep, I won't get too much into into magic because that's going to take like another three hours to explain that. <laughs> it's not Vancian. No, not uh, at all. No, 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 no it's not definitely even not Vancian. If you want to learn more about it, just pick up the free PDF and look it over. Basically, it's going to be based off the fatigue points and still the same amount of damage type deal, but you have to really read it. There's a lot to do with it. Yeah, magic is uh, is, is I, I don't want to call it convoluted because it makes it sound like it's all confusing. I, I should stop using that word and everything. But yeah, magic is a very uh, in It's a learning curve. That's the proper way of saying it, a learning curve. Oh yeah, definitely. Okay, so that's combat in a nutshell, and we'll head into the creature feature theater now. All right, uh, this week on the Creature Feature Theater, we're going to look over the Harpy and uh, compare it to how it differs from the first edition Harpy. And and I'll try to do the best I can on how monsters differ between the two systems. Um, The first thing that you're going to see when you look at the monster descriptions is they have all the same, I get what, they're not called statistics. What were they called again? I think they just uh, uh, um, you mean characteristics? Characteristics, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah it's called same, characteristics. <laughs> they have, yeah, they have the same characteristics as as the the players. Um, you know, from physical strength to uh, the personal beauty, um, which is one thing that I, I it's it's that's more akin to uh, comeliness. And there's there's a special little rule that I'm not going to get really too into. The personal beauty can af- of a creature can affect how the characters deal with it when they when they enter in combat. If it's too beautiful, the the PCs might not even want to enter in combat with it. Um, the biggest difference between the harpy in the first in first edition and the harpy in in uh, 
this game is the fact that the harpy here does not have the ability to charm, um, which is just that blows my mind because that has always been the harpy's biggest weapon um, huh. or biggest. It's been been able to charm. Um, if you think about it, they actually do have it with the physical beauty thing. Like you know what? I guess you're right. They don't they don't say it as the actual um, their special ability, but they do have a pretty high. Right, with the physical beauty, they don't want to attack it. They're kind of just like, wow, she's hot. <laughs> she's hot, and she has, she has claws. Yeah. Um, uh, the, 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 they also have a very high um, natural armor uh, of seven. So when you roll your damage, it's going to absorb seven points of damage right off the bat. So you better roll good against these harpies. Um, there's more, there is more appearing on the... Uh, and more numbers appearing. You can have up to twenty-four harpies oh boy. in battle. Yeah, other than you know two uh, D six in, in first edition, you can have I think up to t- let's see here. No, uh, no, sorry. What number is one to twenty? So, so you can still you can have up to twenty of these harpies. Um, they have the same description. Uh, they're buzzard-like birds with upper bodies of women. Long claws, pale thin faces, tremendous amount of noise flying, and horrible smell. Uh, I don't remember the harpy in first edition having. They just call them foul creatures. They don't say that they smell bad. Um, I, guess, I guess you could take that as um, them smelling bad if you want to look at it that way. Uh, Bird smell. Yeah. Uh, uh, they say harpies can speak, but they have limited, but they have limited magical abilities and no special skills or talents. However, they occasionally are prophetic, um, but they will only speak a prophecy if it is evil and they wish to torment the listener. So that, even though they don't give alignments in, in this game, um, it would seem that that would be chaotic evil, just like the harpy in first edition, uh, just to torment their listener with with their evil prophecies. I think they um, just assume this game that the characters are good. No matter what, and the, everything else is just bad versus them. <laughs> I think that's what they pretty much assume. Let's see here. Also, um, well, they say in first edition the harpies speak no other language but their own. Um, in, in this game right here, it says that they'd have they can speak. Um, I would assume just some common language. Um, they, they say that also that. Unless cornered, harpies do not fight man. Um, I've always known harpies in first edition to try to lure and attack everything they can, especially men. Um, so I, I guess I guess they're a little more meek in this game. Uh, let's see. Long talons. You know, I, I, I guess the damage would still probably be about the same. Um, mm-hmm. I have. I think I could, given a little time, I could figure out how the damage relates between the two systems. But it seems it's, they probably cause about the same amount of damage. Um, I don't know. It's just it's a different system. It definitely is. Now, uh, we were as we were talking before uh, before we actually start recording, um, they do give you all the all all the characteristics in each description. Um, they don't do so in first edition, but if you wanted to do that, it's not that tough to extrapolate what you wanted to use in first edition. We were also talking about that this game would make it easier for you to run monsters as PCs if you wanted to, because they lay out everything for you. 
Um, so if you wanted to have a party full of harpies and hippogriffs and griffins, and I just say that because those are the three things I see on this page, <laughs> um, <laughs> you could have all three of those uh, frolicking about your world, um, damaging things and just kind of causing a ruckus. Yeah, there's no question about anything. If you need, it's there. They really went all out on it. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, that is, you know, I, you know, there, there's a lot. You know, without playing the game, um, it, it's kind of difficult for me to figure it out. But it, it, it seems pretty straightforward. Um, you know, it, it tells you right here in their natural armor, feathers absorb se- seven damage points, and they say that in all the descriptions. They say when natural armor, these, you know, like for the Griffin, hide absorbs six damage points. So you know right off the bat when you're facing something what it's going to do. Um, there is no well. I got to figure this out, then this out. It, it, they they explain it all to you. Makes it a lot easier to run, I think. Um, I guess for the system. Well, there's no question. Like like for AD and D, a lot of people are like, well, what is a, a goblin's uh, strength or dexterity? <laughs> now, the later editions of D and D are really good about you know they they put that all out for you. Um, maybe. That the the people who created those other editions that I haven't played, but I'm going to eventually. Um, <laughs> maybe they, they looked at some of this stuff. Maybe they didn't look just at first edition or second edition or classic. They looked at, or you know, they looked at these the, a game like this because they TSR had the intellectual property rights to it, so they could have used a lot of this stuff. Like you were saying earlier with Birthright, um, it's very possible that they used a lot of this stuff to kind of figure out how they. Uh, designed the later editions. So, well, let's see. This game came out in 1980. When did the uh, third version come out? Do you know, Vince? It didn't. It, I'm looking at the wiki because that's what I, I was wondering. Okay. And it doesn't say exactly when it came out. It just says it was revised. Uh, look at the yeah. front of the PDF. It might actually show you what year it came out. Yeah, I don't have it up right now, but I uh, do know. 1989. All right, so 89 was when TSR re-put it at 30. Oh, okay. Out. Yeah, so, I mean, even then, I mean, remember now, if you saw the Unearthed Arcana, they had social skills or that social chart in the Unearthed Arcana for Cavaliers, which also applied to, to, to uh, uh, Paladins as well and everything. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know if Birthright got anything in this. Remember now, Chivalry and Sorcery and Harmaster were already out, and they're still out to this day. So I mean, so I guarantee that they, they if Birthright did anything, I, they might have gotten more of their uh, resource material from those two systems. Because mm-hmm. I mean, they were very popular back in the eighties and nineties. That's for sure. I can tell you that right now. I played them to death. But uh, just to understand, I just want to jump back to combat modifiers real quick. Like, mm-hmm. I just want to let you know what the initiative round is like, and because, like I said, this is why I prefer first edition AD and D. Remember now when uh, the DM. Or no, DM is the GM actually for this game. Yeah. Um, or the DQM, the Dragon Quest Master. But uh, it starts off that the uh, the action the actions allowed of engaged figures. Engaged figures are those that are within melee. They can do a melee attack. They can evade, withdraw, pass, prepare, or lose a spell. Right. And when I see these things, I'm I, this reminds me of D20 games. Now, uh, if it is in close combat. You can grapple, withdraw, and pass. Right, I went over all this, yeah. Yeah, so the grapples, that's a very interesting concept of how they do grapple in this game. I like that. And then when you have the non-engaged figures, that's where you can do all the weird stuff like the uh, prepare to lose a spell, fire, um, you know, move into melee, move to evade, and so on and so on. It's really interesting. 
But then, uh, like I said, then all the modifiers involved, depending on where you're at compared to the monster. Excellent, excellent game. Well thought out. I guess it didn't really kick off too well. I think this is one of those things that TSR saw it, saw it as a threat, and said, we're buying it, much like they did with a lot of other games in the 80s when they were at their heyday. Put out their own version of the game and pretty much tanked it. Yeah. It's a good game, though. I mean, yeah. I'm looking over it. It is like it will say. It's a well thought out game. Um, you know, it seems very involved, but I think once you played it a couple times, uh, you'd probably get the hang of it. But I think you're right, Vince. I think that's probably what TSR did. <laughs> they did this that with, is a th- did they do that with Chivalry and Sorcerer, or what was the name of that game? Well, I will tell you that there was an issue with Chival- the the uh, creators of Chivalry and Sorcery had an issue with Gary Gygax back in the day. Yeah. I do know that because I don't know if, if if they wanted to take the product to him. I don't know if it was that he was not interested in it. I would have to take a look at the chivalry and sorcery chart. I, I saw something somewhere that explained the whole issue between uh, the the creators of chivalry sorcery and, and Gary Gygax, and and it's sad that it came down like that, you know, because I mean chivalry and sorcery. I mean that's a hardcore game. I mean I don't unless you played it, you would know what I'm talking about. It's definitely hardcore, and chivalry and sorcery. Is not more or less as I guess it's not really more fantasy, but it's more or less like what Gary Gygax had for uh, for his campaign because it had a, it was more medieval than anything else. Mm, yeah, but I- ah, here it goes here it goes. Uh, it says here they intended to present it to Gary Gygax at Gen Con in 1977, but changed their minds once the con where they met Scott uh, Bazaar, who wrote out a letter of intent. Hmm. And after some final changes to get rid of the last remnants of D and D. They they, they uh, renamed it uh, to Chivalry and Sorcery uh, shortly after the release of the first edition of Advanced AD&D. I remember that. Yep. And it's more focused on medieval chivalry than fantasy. And that was the difference between the two. Right, right. Hmm. Interesting. It's just, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I saw somewhere else with the whole why they didn't present it to him because I think Gary had found out what the game was about and he kind of dismissed it or something. I don't know what the whole deal was because Chivalry and Sorcery is all about realism. If if you want to play mm-hmm. a game by realism, that's the game to play because that game is hardcore realism there. You know, it's funny that the other version of D&D that could have been the Cal- what they call the California or the Caltech D&D was right. Warlock. It's funny because when Gary playtested the original D&D when he went to Caltech University, he playtested it there. From there, when he left, he left, obviously, rules behind for them to keep playing. They absorbed it and made their own version of the game, which could have been D&D as it is today. It also focuses more on realism, too. Yeah, and I think that's what he was trying to stay from. He, he wanted to be, you know, real easy and simple, nonchalant. But yeah, yeah, it's impressive how all this stuff comes back after all these years and everything. I, I, I actually, to be honest with you, I practically forgot about Dragon Quest back in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the thing on the monsters is pretty good on how they did the harpy and everything, and, and that's kind of, in a way, that's what I thought of as a harpy, because back back when I when I read on Greek mythology and everything, I thought, you know, not only were their feathers tough, but they might have scaly skin or something. Am I correct on that? That's what I always thought, too, yeah. I yeah. thought they had some type, their skin was a lot more tougher than normal, so I could see why they had a high, uh, well, AC or body defense of seven, whatever what you want to call them and everything. No, that's pretty good. That's, that's good to go. It's not a bad game to get involved in. Like I said, it's something new that the PD, PD out there, and there's a wonderful website. I'm just looking at their website. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's very impressive. 
Now, I'm looking at the wiki. They explain it just like how you did, Will. Dragon Quest combat falls in between the complexity of D&D and such systems as RuneQuest or Harn. Oh, where does it say that at? At the on the wiki for Dragon oh, Quest. See, I didn't, I didn't even look at that. See, see, I, I, when I when I saw how they did the combat and how they did that with the armor, the uh, fatigue and all that, that's chivalry, that's chivalry and sorcery and hard mass in a heartbeat. Yep. It, it also <laughs> says it could take several hours to resolve battles, like you said. Oh well, I mean, just looking at it and how the, well, when I saw the combat and I saw that they have to have the hex sheet right there, I knew there was going to be an issue. Because I said, uh-oh, this has to do with a lot of facing. Facing is very important in this game. Yeah. I mean, it's very mini-dependent, which I don't really like. But uh, Now, you don't have to use miniatures, but in this case, you might want to use miniatures because facing is very important. And again, this is just goes to show people that the historical nature of this game was minis. Yep. It basically was. That, that, that shows right there. Now, uh, take a look at that Grievous chart, though. Did you see the Grievous chart? Yeah, the D100 Grievous chart was amazing. I mean, that's crazy. And unfortunately, they only see that one chart from 1 to 100. I wish they had something extensive as, uh, like, the uh, Middle-Earth role-playing game where they have all those things. But, like, if you get a crit with a spell or if you get a crit with a, a particular weapon, be like, this one here says a savage slash rips open your cheek and jaw. Next pulse, you are stunned. Your physical beauty is increased by one because your wound brings out the maternal paternal instincts in the opposite gender. Well, just take, I don't even know what that means. Take the charts. <laughs> take the charts from Chartmaster and use those. Yeah, you could use those too as well. It's just interesting how they how they design this. Hmm. Oh, I see what's going on. It says Class A weapons do grievous injury on rolls of one through twenty. Class B does twenty one through eighty, and Class C does rolls of seventy through one hundred. Interesting yep, all around. Excellent, excellent, excellent. I, I think that's pretty good here with the Grievous Wounds. Well, tell us what you think out there. If you play Dragon Quest any form between the SPI to the Bantam Books to the TSR version, write in and tell us your opinion of the game, how you, your game sessions went, and if you still play it to this day. If you're interested, go to daredragonquest.org and you can see the Players Association and all the information to play about it. Uh, the link to download the PDFs we'll put in the notes because it's just too long to say. So, oh, don't forget, uh, go to Dragon Quest Frontiers. That's one word, DragonQuestFrontiers.com. That beautiful site. Oh, DragonQuestFrontiers.com? Yeah, yeah, I didn't see that site. Okay. Yeah, it covers a lot because it covers the Colleges of Magic. It, it, it goes through the whole tangent, how combat is done. It, it covers uh, the Grievous Chart, the Fright Table, the Backfire Table, Profession, Advancement, uh, Combat, uh, Character Creation, Combat Modifiers, Experience Charts, Advancement. It covers it the whole gambit. Hmm. Okay, cool. Yep, DragonQuestFrontiers.com. Dot com. There you go. <laughs> well, that's going to wrap up the show this week, and uh, we'll be back next week. Um, I think, wait, next week's going to fall into, yes. No, Will will not be here next week. No, unfortunately, I will not be here next week. I'm going to Dragonflight, to a gaming convention all three days, and I am done. And then Gen Con. Not you, but Gen yeah, Con got, comes up. Yeah, we got Ren Fair three weekends in August after Dragonflight, and then I got PAX Prime at the end of August. Yeah, unfortunately, by the time this comes out, I think Gen Con will be out because we're like two shows behind as far as putting them out. We have like another one waiting to go out after Matt just put up the special insert number nine today. 
The oh. surprise. Remember we talked about surprise rules, Will? Oh, wow. Yes, yeah, surprise. Yes, yeah, surprise. 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 <laughs> yeah, that one just went up, and then the one after that would be issue number 89. That will be going up next week, and then this week, this one will probably be going up right when Gen Con's coming out. So, Which one talked about the pig faces? That would be the... Uh, I think that's the issue before. 89. Yeah, 89. Oh, 89. so that was already posted then, right? No, 89 has not been posted yet. Oh, I can't wait. That guy's probably waiting. I wonder if they answered my question about orcs having pig faces. <laughs> God, pig faces. You keep saying that over and over. People are like, what are you talking about? Now they know. <laughs> yeah, now they know. We're talking about pig faces. All right. So I'm going to put a wrap to this show and say keep it original, keep it old school, and uh, good night, everybody. Good night. See y'all later. Roll for initiative.